Hey my friends, what's going on? Welcome to the Astro Hustle. I'm Corey Allen. Hope you're doing well today. Hope that you're feeling all right, doing good, all that good type of thing. Today on the show, I'm joined by Adriana Limbach. She is a meditation teacher, personal coach, author, and all-around very kind and wise person. I had a great time speaking with Adriana. We talked about ego. We talked about vulnerability. We talked about enlightenment, which from now on I'm going to call bonks instead of enlightenment. And we also talk about her new book, Tea and Cake with Demons, A Buddhist Guide to Feeling Worthy. My friends, I am very happy to tell you that this episode is brought to you by Four Sigmatic. Four Sigmatic is a superfood company that uses the real magic of functional mushrooms to enhance your well-being. And they have all sorts of delicious delivery methods to do so. They have mushroom coffees, which are blends of coffee and mushrooms. Uh, They don't taste like mushrooms. They taste very much like coffee. Uh, They also have elixirs, which are uh, mushroom teas, essentially. Their best-selling Lion's Mane elixir is one of my favorites. The best thing about these is their powders that come in small packets. They're very easy just to mix in water on the go. Very convenient. And Four Sigmatic also offers, apart from their coffees and elixirs, uh, protein powders, hydrating skin serum, pretty much everything you can imagine, they've got it, and it's all delicious. So right now, if you go over to foursigmatic.com slash astral, use the code astral at checkout, you will save 15% on your first order. That's foursigmatic.com slash astral and use the word astral at checkout and you will save 15% all of your delicious functional mushrooms. All right, my friends, the time is now. Let's bust out the cake. Let's warm up the tea. Let's invite in some demons and let's go talk to the great Adriana Limbach. Do you find that a lot of people that end up dedicating a big part of their lives towards uh, sharing the tools that they've learned to overcome their own challenges uh, come from a pretty challenging background? That's a really great question. That's a really, really great question. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I can't, I can't speak from most people's experiences, um, but it is sort of like the classic. Um, you know, there's there's the path of of sort of like spontaneous enlightenment, right? Where um, you just kind of get like bonked over the head with a with a shoe, and you're like, oh, whoa, got it. Okay, cool. Thanks. Um, and then there's like the more arduous sort of, uh, like progressive enlightenment or, or kind of like slow path. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've, I've, I've always found that, um, some of my like spontaneous enlightenment moments, like that bonk over the head, um, really come from just like the pit of suffering or like the, from like having a really, really hard time, um, and yeah, I think it, I think it can be the fast track. Um, you know, if, if we have some tools in our tool belt for, I guess, sort of alchemizing that suffering into something that's useful or, or sort of turning that suffering into gold, as you put it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you mentioned multiple moments of spontaneous enlightenment. I, I like this. I, I want to hear more about that because you know, enlightenment is one of those words that obviously is very nebulous and many people will disagree and, and have, well, maybe just varying opinions and approaches to what that actually means. So, um, 
you mentioned a uh, you know m- multiple alignments. So how do you? What's your take on that? And how do you kind of describe? Just let's stick with just the spontaneous enlightenment moment or experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm thinking of of one for myself. Um, I will never forget it. It was at the New York Insight Center. Uh, Gina Sharp was teaching. It was probably back in like 2007, um, and I was in one of those kind of like pit of despair moments um, where everything that I had sort of been relying on up to that point in terms of job and relationship and home life and uh, everything was going through a a major flux sort of falling apart and coming back together into some, you know, who knows what configuration. Um, And she leaned into the audience and she said something that I've heard phrased a number of different times in different ways, but for some reason it was like a major bonk right on the forehead. Uh, In that moment, she said, you know, what is happening at this moment in your life is not nearly as important as your relationship to what's happening at this moment in your life. Um, And I think because I had been going through such a, a a tumultuous moment and was obviously so kind of like looking for something. Um, I was able to hear it in a way that was like, bonk, got it. Mm-hmm. Okay. For some reason, it just like in that moment baked into my bones as something that I, I knew to be true. Um, so when I think of, of spontaneous enlightenment and, you know, I, th- I think you're spot on going to what you said, we have lots of different kind of working definitions of what enlightenment is. Um, I, I think just to kind of like, put a working definition out on the table. I always think of enlightenment as being, um, there's sort of like the ultimate enlightenment of, you know, being able to see through the nature of reality, which, you know, I have zero (laughs) experience (laughs) with. Um, But then there's also kind of like the like relative enlightenment, which is just kind of like turning on a light switch uh, in our, in our everyday life. Um, which is just those like tiny nuggets and those tiny insights um, that we now know to be true through our own direct experience uh, rather than just kind of hearing it and being like, yeah, that's a cool concept. That's a really cool idea. It's like, oh, got it. Mm -hmm. I love that. I think that I would like to, I prefer to just exchange the word enlightenment with bonks from here on out. (laughs) I think it's it's a much more appropriate and like, I don't know, I think it says more than it's more, it has more utility than the word enlightenment, because of course the word enlightenment is like the word God or love or something. You know, people will, could, will talk forever about like how to define those things because they're so subjective and relative, but a bonk really, you know, the, Really, really puts it out there, makes it clean. Yeah, right. There's also something so visceral about it, where it's like, like hitting the skin. It's like in the body, like bonk Mm -hmm. in the skin. Okay, got it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yeah. So I, I love what you're saying. You know, I I am very much on on that side of things as well. I mean, people tend to talk about enlightenment, like, um, or tend to think of it as I think kind of in the zeitgeist is this supreme awakening moment where, as you said, you, you transcend your understanding of the nature of reality and so forth. But again, like that's rather, you know, a poetic language, but what does that mean? You mm-hmm. know? Um, and I think that to me, uh, you know, I've had the great pleasure of speaking to people who, who, you know, sadhus, Zen monks, you know, whatever, go on, on and on. Like, who people would say that person seems enlightened, you know, or this shaman in the Amazon, that guy's enlightened. Um, but I don't know. 
if you're still in the container of a human body, you're still a human critter and you're still an animal. And so like it, enlightenment to me must be a, a working process, not a type of like arrival state because you're never a, a, a cooked goose, you know, as Ramdas puts it anyway, like you, you can't, you can't, if you ever are done as a human, then that's whenever, you know, you're starting to mess up is whenever you think that you're finished. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why I very much like, uh, the, the, in Indian classical music, the term usted, which means master in training. So it's like as high as you can get in ranks, uh, even like, you know, someone that everyone knows like Ravi Shankar was still just like a master in training at Sitar. You can't get finished. Um, and so I was thinking kind of, a, as you said, like a working idea of enlightenment, just totally re- spontaneously uh, <laughs> a couple of days ago about that. Um, and it was like, it, I feel like perhaps there are these, these larger, I was thinking like dominoes. There are these larger spontaneous moments of awakening or aha moments or bonks, as you were saying. And then that's how you knock over the first domino. Mm. Right. And then after that, then it's a path of like gradual waking. And those are the the kind of causal dominoes falling over afterwards. So you have this moment of like, for me, I think the biggest awakening experience or the most impactful one that was most transformative and long lasting was one time uh, I had kind of a a spontaneous awakening. raising awareness let's say of my subjective perception and it was like completely life-altering um and that was a huge what i would call you know bonk for me because i realized that everything i perceive is just this impression of the objective world and therefore the entire story and narrative of my own inner dialogue of my point of view is just that it's just this this impression based upon my genetics and past experience and cultural reinforcements and all that type of stuff. And so that's the first big domino. It's like, oh, wow. So, you know, one could also say, well, that insight is that your reality is an illusion, you know, but people don't like that because it tends to feel invalidating to one's experience. But I think it's a a good thing to realize. Um, But then that's the first domino. That's the big spontaneous one. And that starts knocking on the other ones. And then those turn into, oh, well, why would I ever argue with anyone? You know, and and, and why and, and perhaps I'm wrong. And maybe that person is act- acting destructively from a place of deep suffering as opposed to pure nefarious vitriolence or something like that. Mm. Yeah. How beautiful. How beautiful. Something something that you said that really struck me is um, you know, you said you really like the 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 utility of that phrase, bonk. Um and that to me sort of opens up the question of like, okay, you know, if we're calling it enlightenment, if we're calling it a bonk, if we're calling it an insight, um, the utility sort of opens up the question of how we're using it. Um, and, um, I I think it's so lovely to hear you speak to that from your own experience of, you know, I, I have this insight, um, and it sort of tips over the first domino of, uh, okay, reality is an illusion, um, but if it just stopped there um, and it, it didn't actually translate into the way that you used it of like questioning, why would I ever fight with someone and like really sort of trying to understand where people are coming from and, and sort of using this insight um, to influence or inform the way that you then participate in your world. Um, it almost seems like it would just be kind of like dropping a boulder into a pond and, and like mm-hmm. letting it sink to the bottom. 
Um, mm-hmm. So I think that's so lovely that, you know, it immediately translated into something that you could use, something that you yeah. could work with. Yeah, that to me, that's always been a really important aspect of kind of what we're talking about here. And, and because I, I feel like that, um, you know, there's there's information out there and then um, knowledge is whenever you can remember that information. So mm-hmm. if you can remember something you read, now you've got knowledge in quotes. But wisdom comes from whenever you have to apply that knowledge to life, right? That's when that arises. Mm. Um, and then I love David Krakow, a, a scientist I, I had on the show added to that, which was then after that comes understanding. And, and I, I love adding that piece to it too, because it speaks to, um, you know, it, that process makes learning information or remembering information, not just a, a veneer of your identity that you're adding to it. It makes it to something that you're actually applying. And so you, you get benefit and it becomes a useful tool for transformation. So I, I love whenever you, you spoke earlier about this, this bonk that you had and how it, how it um, made you think about your relationship to the idea and to what you're experiencing as opposed to what you're actually experiencing. Can you expand on that somewhat? Yeah. Um, so again, I think it comes back to the, the utility of it, of, um, you know, the, the, the bonk, the kind of like spontaneous sort of knowing of, oh, wow, this is speaking to something that, um, I, I, I am familiar with something that feels really, um, kind of like I, I know it in my guts, but I've never been able to put language around it. Um, and it's sort of, uh, I guess for me, you know, for everyone, it's, for everyone, it's completely different, but just speaking from my own experience, it, it feels like it, it calls something forward um, that has been just kind of latent or asleep, or um, and it's it's like a it's like a a re meeting or a, a kind of like refamiliarization of like oh wow okay now that I have language around this direct experience that I feel like I have a a, a kind of intuitive like non-linguistic knowing of already, um, now I feel like I can use it. Now I feel like I can bring it into the world um, mm-hmm. and really look at, you know, how how that might translate, how that might translate into the, the like really brass tacks of my life. Um, and I think for me, in terms of like path and, and sort of this overarching question of like, wait, what are we, what are we doing here? How are we participating in the world? How are we using our lives? Um, for me, I think it's, it's always been the most interesting when it's like in the dirt, like when it's like so practically on the ground, um, that, that we can, um, that we can taste it. It's like fully, fully embodied and fully usable and, and, and fully, um, kind of like translatable to our daily lives. I feel like that's, that's for me, uh, that for me is where, where the juice is. Um, I know some people, um, really kind of like find the excitement and find the juice and find the, the kind of like love or inspiration for their path, um, up in more of the kind of, um, like ephemeral, nebulous, um, sort of atmospheric thinking of mm-hmm. the path and um, like what we're doing here and these bigger questions. But yeah, I think for me, it, it's always been kind of like a boots on the ground effort of like, okay, so what does that then mean for 
this interaction that I'm having with this other human being. Absolutely. Yeah. And not to, not to be like generalizing, but I find that in my experience, ones that generally get a lot of uh, nutrition from kind of philosophical wankery, just sort of like, the, you know, the, <laughs> like just, Hey, let's, let's talk some shit and like, cl- you know, throw the net out as far as we can. And then just sort of like, yeah, masturbate with, these ideas that aren't really actual ideas and aren't really connected. That's one of the things that la- I, I <laughs> used to really crack me up about podcasts and the philosophy genre in mm. iTunes. I'd be like, none of these podcasts have philosophies and none of them are talking about philosophies. <laughs> they just like the idea of what philosophy means. Mm. And, you know? um, and so anyway, you know, I find that the people that get really into that, of course, then, you know, if you, um, it, it becomes, to me, like generally it's like, it's a way of a, a further way of distraction. It's another way to sort of stay distracted from truth and actually work with, uh, what you need to be working with to find the results that you, um, are looking for in, in people like yourself that go, okay, that's all fun. And, and I do believe that experimental thinking or any of that stuff can be really useful as long as you run it through the logical discernment filter and say, okay, where are some, where's some actual reality in this that's applicable. Um, but people like yourself that actually look for things that are useful actually have experienced some real stuff and actually have some real suffering that they have to work through and people that get just kind of have fun, you know, waxing philosophical about nothingness um perhaps don't have as as urgent uh of a need to reduce the immediate suffering that they're experiencing Mm -hmm. yeah that's such a beautiful way of putting it such a beautiful way of putting it and i have to say no nutrition from philosophical wankery is now my new favorite phrase (laughs) 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 yeah yeah i mean I, i think I don't know. I feel like we might be on the same page here. Um, I, I feel like I'm just always looking for, you know, does this, does this connect me? Does this connect me further to the, the sort of, uh, experience of being human, my own personal experience of being human, the way that that translates into my interpersonal relationships. And then also kind of the like societal or cultural, um, experience of being human. Um, mm-hmm. like, does it, does it feel like it's, it's creating more threads or, or does it feel like it's, it's kind of like disconnecting me, um, and, and sort of like putting me in this like very rarefied, um, sort of like airy, uh, space that is unrelatable. Um, because yeah, I, I feel like, I don't know. I don't know. For me, for me, the, the, the path, whatever that means, um, for me where it gets really juicy is, is does this make me feel more connected to, mm-hmm. to the human experience, my own others culturally? Uh, and if not, it, you know, takes a little bit of looking at. Right. And so what does that connection feel like to you or how do you um, define, you know, whenever that connection is being met? Mm. Um, again, I think it's the familiarity, familiarity um, calling for something that, that, feels really sort of familiar and known. Um, so, uh, just as, as kind of like a, like a tangible example of this, um, uh, I just 
finished writing a book. I just came out with a book, um, Tea and Cake with Demons, Buddhist Guide to Feeling Worthy. Um, and one of my, my major inspirations for writing this book, um, there were a number of them, um, but, but one of the big ones was um, that for the past decade, I have been working professionally as a coach with one of these um, kind of like multinational organizations that train other coaches. Um, and I do these group coaching programs with them, uh, which I absolutely love because it puts me in contact with people, mostly women, some men, people uh, from across the planet. I think this organization is in like 35 different countries. Um, and so I do these smaller group coaching programs, um, eight people in a group, like 36 different uh, people at a time in these smaller groups, um, where we start to kind of unpack their challenges and their hopes and their desires and, you know, just the human experience. Um, and something that I've noticed is that regardless of where these students were coming from, um, what their backgrounds were, what their, uh, you know, belief systems were, their socioeconomic backgrounds, their religious preferences, their, um, physical location, their family of origin, like they couldn't be more different, but something that I saw that was a common theme that kept coming through is that many of them spoke to the feeling of not quite being enough. Um, and it, it, it came in a lot of different, um, sort of framing, but a lot of times it boiled down to, um, sort of the, the fear of not being, uh, smart enough or not being um, well-resourced enough, not having enough money or not having enough um, kind of like social standing, connections, friends, not having enough influence, not having enough followers on social media, um, feeling like they weren't um, thin enough or pretty enough or smart enough or learned enough. Or, or it came in so many different um, kind of phrases, but it just shocked me how, regardless of where these people were coming from, there was sort of this, this common thread that, um, I found we could all relate to every single one of us of not quite feeling enough. It's like, yes, I have some really amazing qualities about myself that I'd like to celebrate. And also there's this sense of just not being quite, there. There's something about me that's, that's fundamentally flawed, something that's like not quite blank enough. Um, and it, you know, it's, it's something that I related to very deeply. So the, the more that these sessions went on, uh, the more that I started, started to feel that familiarity of, of, oh, this is a connective thread. This is connective tissue. This is, this is a place where, um, just by virtue of being human, so many of us can relate to this feeling or relate to this sense. Like, what is that? What is this thing that we very rarely talk about in polite company um, of feeling like we're not quite enough? Um, and that is really one of the, the sort of central questions that, um, that I brought to the forefront in, in writing this book, um, not necessarily with the, the impulse or the motivation to, to like find a hard answer for that question. 
Um, like, okay, this is why we feel it. And this is how we're going to solve it. Um, because I think it is different from everyone's experience, but really just kind of opening up the question and um, hopefully providing some useful framework uh, to start thinking about the question through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I appreciate a couple of things about the beginning of your book. Um, one is that 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 feeling that everyone has in some way or another, as you mentioned, of kind of feeling like they're not enough. Um, I like that you address that in the book by saying, you know, even the idea of writing a book felt a little scary because you thought, you know, who, who in the world would, you know, who, who would want to publish my book, you know? Um, and that speaks to exactly what you're talking about. And, I think the more that people can see stuff like that, it's like, well, obviously the book did come out. Um, and the more people can, can learn like, Oh, we we're in, we're into this, this hypnotism, this, we're kind of bedazzled by the entertainment industry, particularly, you know, American entertainment industry, which just ripples out into the rest of the world of like this, this perfected image of like, um, all of the and the all of the animal s- signaling signs that that need to be signaled to show dominance and you know mm-hmm. top dog status and all that that silly stuff in invulnerability until now vulnerability has become hip and so now people are <laughs> being overly vulnerable and it's like really weird and like like I saw this great Brene Brown quote where she said something rather about like um, over vulnerability is actually an act of desperation which I was like. Whew, She's always got the sticks of dynamite, you know. Um, <laughs> totally. <laughs> she's like Nietzsche, like that. Like one sentence could just like you can stick with you for like a year. Right, it just cuts um, right through it. Like, oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> but um, yeah. So it, it, you know, like all, you know, like yourself, I'm sure. Like I know, you know, so many artists and musicians and authors and you know, public speakers and so forth and so forth and so forth, and they they're all they're more fragile than you know, most of them, the people who aren't in that type of industry that I know. Yeah. And yet, you know, the way that those things are portrayed, you know, in, in media, people say, Oh, these people are like on this next level. I can't reach it. It's like, well, sure. These people may have specific talents at a certain thing. And they were around the, in the circumstances in which those talents were able to thrive also often with the help of a lot of other people. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's a universal quality of humanness because we're always, you know, because of our, our evolutionary history, looking at ways to compare ourselves to others to kind of understand where we fit into the animal game structure. And what's kind of like, what's twisted about it is that that's all been intentionally manipulated by advertisers, by, you know, the corporate landscape of, of America has does nothing like you drive down the road, you know, you see billboards for at least in Austin anyway, like plastic surgery, like dermatology, get your Botox, get your, here's, you know, this, that it's just all, it's like, and then alcohol ads, it's like, here, you do this to try and make yourself feel complete and then use this to try and numb yourself out. <laughs> and so like what, what chance do people have? Right. But I love that. That was a long way of saying, I love that. Uh, you actually put that in the book as opposed to just talking about it kind of around the book. Yeah. 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 And it is, I mean, it's so interesting. Um, you know, the point that you made of, of 
it's such a human instinct to look around us um, and just kind of like see where we are in the hierarchy of things, like understand our place in the world um, and how with the internet, which, you know, I think has a lot of wisdom qualities, also has a lot of neurotic qualities. We now have the capacity to look essentially like in the bowls of millions of people be like, wait, what do you have? What's like, mm-hmm. what's going on over there? Um, and it is interesting, as you said, that the, the sort of like oversharing aspect of, of vulnerability um, is very in vogue right now of like, I'm just going to, I'm just going to pour it all out on the table. Um, and yeah, I wonder, I wonder, I wonder how, I wonder why, I wonder why, I wonder why that is such a, it's such a a kind of like fashionable way of expression in the internet age. I think it's just because everything tends to like, whatever the cultural sort of, um, trendiness starts building towards it reaches this peak and then the way to to like respond and move on to what could be the next one is to do the like fix the over like the overcorrection so you're like okay there's was like a decade of the emergence of new technology which is social media everyone like offering the the perfected in quotes images and ideas of their life all the best moments and the the hottest thoughts and all that type of stuff and then as soon as like as a as a culture everyone became hip to that game then people were like oh well how can i still talk about myself all the time but make it (laughs) seem like i'm taking the ego out of it Right. You know, so like, all right, so now I'm going to lean into vulnerability. So now I'm just being one, I'm relatable. I'm one of you. I'm just being honest about all my shortcomings, except for the ones I actually want to tell people about. Because right. <laughs> like the game, you know, like that game never stops. Like it, that's one of the the kind of weird things about public media like that. And it, it's like the, the game is always being played no matter what you see. It's like whenever Jay-Z put out the 444 album, that was like, this is my, that was his thing. Mm. He's like, well, this is my big vulnerable moment. I'm going to talk about how I don't feel good enough and how I cheated on Beyonce and all of our relationship issues. I was like, you know, he isn't actually feeling any of that stuff. There's like a team of, of marketing people and they're like, okay, what's like, what can we like leverage right now to gain as, as many eyeballs as possible? And it's like, oh, how about vulnerability? Okay, cool. Well, he's like, I don't feel like Jay-Z is like, I, I don't like feel it. And of course, I'm just being hyperbolic and mm-hmm. using him as a random example. Um, but he's like, oh, cool. Well, that that will sell well. So I'll do this. I'll play the vulnerability card until whatever the next thing is. And, you know, people people take that and then, and then just kind of run with it. And it turns into another weird, distorted, like, identity game where now you see like oh look everyone's being so open and and vulnerable in their newsletters and on social media and they're they're like here's the you know me with with all my defenses down because i want to connect like real people it's like it's you know i'm not saying the intention isn't there isn't good in some some parts but like in a lot of cases the, like the the true vulnerability of someone, you wouldn't want to show it to someone. Because mm. if it's if it's an actual vulnerability, like a, a true one that actually affects you, um, 
it isn't something to be shared publicly. It's something you could you could talk about. You could like, you know, you could move into and and build up. But another great Brene Brown quote <laughs> is she's like, you know, vulnerability, like true vulnerability has to be earned, mm-hmm. right? Because you need the respect of the people that you're you're dealing with um, in order to give them the respect of sharing a real shortcoming or a real thing you're dealing with. And so it's kind of bizarre is that there's people like sharing all of their, their vulnerabilities that they're actually comfortable talking about, that they're not real true vulnerabilities. They're sort of like, you know, acceptable ones or whatever. But um, I think it's sort of, in some ways it's useful because it gets people talking, I guess, but in other ways it's kind of destructive because it just further buries some truths, I guess. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder, I wonder if when the, the tide shifts again, uh, when the, the kind of the pendulum starts to swing back in, in the other direction, um, if we'll be left with, um, you know, more of like an open dialogue about yeah. this, um, without it necessarily being you know, like a, like a selling point. I, um, have you, have you ever been to new Orleans? I, I just was there two weeks ago. No kidding. Okay. Did you do the, the pharmacy tour? I did not. Oh, okay. Okay. Big fan. The last time I was there, I did the, the pharmacy tour. A friend had been recommended it for years and I finally went and there's a gentleman who leads the pharmacy tour. Um, apparently, it's the oldest standing pharmacy in the United States. Um, they have a lot of kind of the original bottles and tinctures and um, medications there. And uh, he does this really great, you can tell he's having so much fun with it, tour where you essentially stand in one space place because it's a very small pharmacy, but you just kind of like pivot around and, and he shares stories of kind of our idea of medicine back in the 1890s. Um, and something that he said, I, I've been thinking about it ever since I went on this tour. Um, he was talking about consumption and how uh, back in the Victorian era, one out of seven people uh, at least in New Orleans, were dying of consumption, which we now know to be tuberculosis. Um, And because people were dying left and right of all sorts of crazy diseases, um, especially in New Orleans, because it's like very swampy and there were mosquitoes and yellow fever was like knocking out half of the population each summer. And um, a lot of these diseases were very painful. um, But consumption was like, the most glamorous possible thing that you could be dying of um, because it was like the least painful and you would just like be kind of like slowly wasting away um, into this like very like chic, like heroin chic, like thin Mm -hmm. figure. Um, And when you were dying of of consumption, your skin would take on this blue cast. Um, And so because it was such a dominant thing in the culture, rather than stigmatizing it, it just got co-opted um, as being the new standard of beauty. And mm. so, um, which I actually think is kind of lovely in a sense mm-hmm. of like, okay, rather than stigmatizing this thing, because it is so common, it's so prevalent, we're just going to co-opt this as being the, the new standard of beauty. Um, so 
people who weren't dying of consumption um, started to paint their faces with like crushed up blue butterfly wings to to take on this like slightly blue ashy cast. Um, and in order to get the, the butterfly tincture to stick to their faces, they would put these masks of melted wax on their face <laughs> first and then dust the butterfly blue on. Um, but because it is New Orleans and it's so hot and it's swampy down there, everyone was walking around with like melting wax on their face um, and so the saying mind your beeswax actually came from um, the fact that everyone was walking around with their faces melting off and it was like don't point out the way that my face is melting out take a look at the way that your face is melting <laughs> off that's amazing isn't that amazing <laughs> it really is it's also like what what more human thing could there be as far as the human game goes to be like Everyone that's dying slowly and like rather painlessly, <laughs> they, like the, the rest of the society is like, oh, look at this fancy pants over here. I'll get in the dial like a like this privileged person wasting away slowly. <laughs> totally. Like we're going to glorify that death. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Can't you just get stabbed in a bar fight at 5 a.m. like the rest of us? God, we think you're better than me. Oh, gosh. Yeah, that's good. That's good stuff. Um, in, in just like that example right there, it goes to show how absurd all of the tropes are from then to, you know, until now. And speaking of spontaneous enlightenment, like whenever you can realize that it's easy in retrospect to recognize those things as absurd and then laugh at them. But whenever you can then recognize what's happening presently, it, it really makes life interesting because you're like, you know, it just anywhere you look, you can see the absurdity of the same game that's being played just in a different way, you know? Oh, yeah. Oh, definitely. Definitely. I mean, I think of all of the ways in which um, something that is like so exceedingly, I mean, what am I trying to say here? Something that would be really hard for us to wrap our minds around as soon as it becomes prevalent enough, um, we just kind of normalize it. We just kind of mm -hmm. like co-opt it into the culture. Um, and it's sort of like, you know, this is no big deal that there's billions of pounds of plastic in the ocean like yeah we should worry we should like get rid of plastic straws but like you know it's kind of like normalized like this is yeah. what's happening now um and also the, the the ways in which and this is what really gave me pause um the ways in which um it's so much more satisfying to to point out how someone else's face is melting off mm -hmm. like oh i see i see your face i see your face melting off um rather than kind of just tending to the fact that my face is also melting off in public. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. It's like, yeah, absolutely. That, I think, you know, to me, it was a big, it was a big win whenever I realized, Oh, all of our faces are melting off. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's, yeah. I, I love this. Like one of my kind of like things, things that just brings me joy is seeing, the this the weird like schisms that have been created because of sort of what around we're talking about and when one of those things as you're talking about like recognizing that how how bizarreness has become normalized where and and again it's always a response to an uncontrollable evolution of something that's like kind of got crazy in this case technology and like broadcasting and stream speeds i saw randomly on youtube one time that uh there was like for a while 
there would be tracks, you know, like music, people upload songs to YouTube, but then in the comments, people, you know, like you can pick 1080 is HD, like visual and audio resolution, then seven, uh, whatever, 720, no, 740, and then uh, 480, I think, or whatever, um, kind of lowering the resolution with each with each jump. Mm. And comments are like, oh, this track is good. Man, it sounds so good in 480. And then people are like, I wish there was like a 220 version of this <laughs> or something. And like, so it's like young, young people are like, man, this, this track sounds like shit. Like, I love this. Like the lower the resolution, the more like watery and, and, uh, fragmented and pixely sounding, the better. And it's like, it's like a hot thing for a brief moment of time. And yeah, that's what we're all dealing with essentially like all the time. Right. Like, like that, that level of like silliness, but just uh, in our own lives. Okay. So, um, I love uh, the title of your book is awesome. Tea and cake with demons. Uh, where did that come from? Hmm. Um, so it came from a, a story. Um, I wonder you might be familiar with it. It came from a story uh, that uh, is passed around pretty frequently in like Buddhist circles and um, different teachers use it and, and different traditions. Um, I did fastidious research for this book, uh, and I couldn't find the actual origin for the story, um, which shook me a little bit because I, I like to know, um, kind of where things are coming from so that I, I can give it a sense of lineage and I can give it like a sense of, of grounding. Um, so it comes from a story. We're not quite sure where it comes from. Maybe Thich Nhat Hanh is the first person who told the story. Maybe Jeff Cornfield is the first person who's told the story. Uh, there's no indication that it came from the actual suttas of the Buddha. But it is a story that's passed around of the time that um, Mara, who in, in the Buddhist cosmology is oftentimes talked about as being kind of like the big bad guy. Um, he's sort of like the Buddha's arch nemesis. Uh, and whereas the Buddha represents sort of um, awakening, awakened mind, um, Mara represents delusion. Um, sometimes he's called the, the Lord of Delusion. He's sort of like self-doubt personified. And uh, the story goes that he came to town, the town that the Buddha was teaching in, and um, the Buddha's attendants came running down the hill to alert him, to let him know, you know, Mara's here, Mara's here, Mara's here. What are, what, what are, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Um, and uh, the, the story goes that they sort of like whipped themselves into a frenzy. Um, and one of the monks, one of the attendants says, you know, uh, let's, let's, let's run. We have plenty of time. Let's just get out of town. We'll, we'll like grab our begging bowl, run for the hills. Uh, he'll never find us. And then another monk says, um, let's hide. Let's, let's just like go underground and hide and wait until he passes. And then we'll be in the clear. And then another monk comes in with some strategy and says, you know, let's go on the offensive. Let's, let's go on the attack. We know he's here. He doesn't know that we're here. Let's just, let's run him out of town. Um, which I have to say is the part of the story that, you know, going back to that familiarity, going back to that, that like connection, that thread, um, I completely relate to because I recognize those as being all of my strategies for mm -hmm. dealing with, um, you know, my neuroses or my self-doubt or any kind of like really 
sort of painful tendencies that I have um, is just like, okay, how am I going to strategize my way out of this? Like, I don't want to feel it. I just want to fix it as quickly as I possibly can. Um, uh, What am I going to do here? And what the Buddha in this story offers, um, I think is so radical um, and kind of sort of sets the stage for the book, uh, which is he says, you know, invite him in, lead him to my door, lay out my finest china, and invite Mara in for tea, um, which is so lovely uh, and from my experience completely counterintuitive uh, in the way that I relate slash we relate to um, to our neuroses, to, to what we find to be really painful and really difficult and really hard to face is instead of like strategizing our way out of it or around it, just to say, okay, I'm going to make some space to just be with this um, as not my enemy, not as something that I have to just kind of um, abide or tolerate or, you know, crush, um, but something that is my esteemed guest. Like, holy cats, I should be so lucky Mm -hmm. that this neurosis is coming to the forefront and I can create some space to just be with it. Um, Which... You know, going going back to the bonks, I think the first time that I heard that story, um, I was I was a little bit confounded because it was like, well, why why would you do that? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't feel good. <laughs> that doesn't feel good. That makes no sense. Um, and you know, yet from my experience, at least, has has really proven to kind of be um, the way to develop a, a, a sound, trusting. Uh, friendship with uh, all of the aspects of who I am, especially the things about myself that I don't necessarily prefer. Mm -hmm. It's just Mm -hmm. to also allow them space. Yeah, that's really beautiful. I mean, that's, to me, I had a, a, um, it it was a, a wonderful moment of realization, a good bonk as well, whenever I realized that all of the feelings that were arising, as you mentioned, neuroses or frustrations or, you know, whatever they might be in my life that once I started actually allowing myself to like sit with them whenever they would arise instead of, as you said, strategize your way out of it. That's a great way to describe what I think many, many people do. Um, which I suppose in some ways is just flooding your mind with as many, other streams to where where the the initial one that was causing a problem gets kind of distracted from and and eventually kind of flooded out. Um, And so, yeah, like actually taking responsibility for what you're feeling and saying, oh, wait a second, perhaps, just maybe, my body is trying to tell me something. Mm. Maybe I should listen to it. You know, it's like, and emotions or you know intellectual um disturbances <laughs> um challenges whatever you want to call them like they are just you know biological signals right and and yet we we kind of look at them as like well they're unpleasant so i don't want to deal with them but we it, what's the difference between that and hunger right so like yeah. <laughs> you see, but we have this idea we have this you know our stomach growls and we don't go oh that's unpleasant i don't want to deal with that you just go get some food and then you're fine. Um, the 
the issue is that, of course, eating is often a pleasurable experience where we are taught to believe because of our kind of cultural theatrical drama that we're all playing, all of our masks and costumes that we're wearing, is that we shouldn't showcase our, well, what are perceived to be weaknesses or our challenges to others, even to ourselves, right? And so we're taught that that's actually not a delicious thing to do is to, to feast on those feelings. (laughs) Um, but I, you know, just whenever I realized that, I was like, oh, wait a second, maybe, maybe if I actually sat with these things and understood them and allowed myself to feel them, maybe I would learn something. And, uh, it was, it was pretty incredible change, you know, because you realize, oh, I'm feeling this way. Even in the, you know, in the Buddhist way of just naming it, like, okay, what am I, let's understand what I'm feeling first. Yeah. Like, what is this? And then why is it? And then integrating that feeling and sitting with it um, actually makes it where, guess what? That feeling doesn't come back as often because you actually addressed it and, mm. and, and heard what your body was trying to tell you. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I love how you just put it of, of, of integrating it. Um, you know, really just allowing it to, to, um, become a, a, a part of rather than the sort of separate aspect that, um, gets demonized. It gets demonized. It gets, um, kind of slapped with the label, like bad, yuck, no, disgusting, painful, put in a little box, shoved in a hole. Um, and, and how, as you said, from your experience, that really allows it to not come back quite as often um, mm-hmm. because it's been, it's been digested. It's been processed and integrated. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, you know, as you were telling that story, I, I was reminded of a, a moment that happened actually really recently. It was about two months ago. I was teaching uh, meditation at a multinational bank uh, here in New York city where I live and, um, it was kind of like one of these meditation 101, uh, hour long talk practice Q and a, and in the Q and a, which is always my favorite. Cause I'm always like, okay, I know, I know what I'm thinking here, but like, what's coming up for you guys. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a woman who raised her hand and she said, you know, have you, have you ever seen someone have just like a really bad reaction to meditation like meditation is like bad for them um like it like it like it actually it isn't beneficial at all they should just stay away from it (laughs) Mm -hmm. and i thought that was such a a great question an interesting question um and i i really gave it some thought and i said you know i've i've never personally seen that i've i've definitely heard stories of folks who decide that the best way to learn how to meditate is to like go on a 10 day silent retreat. Um, and there are some stories from that that are like not so great in terms of their response to meditation. Um, but I've never actually seen that with my own two eyes. And she came up to me afterwards and she said, you know, because I had a bad reaction to meditation. Um, I said, Oh, okay. You know what, what was it like? And she said, I just felt really heavy. I said, oh, okay. Um, you know, did you feel mentally heavy, emotionally heavy, physically heavy? 
And the tears just came right to the surface. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, okay. Yep. All right. Um, and I, I think, you know, in, in terms of, of meditation practice with which, yay, I'm so happy that meditation is becoming more and more just a part of our cultural conversation. It's becoming more sort of, I guess, secularized, more widely accepted, more widely practiced. Uh, a lot of people are, are becoming more curious about it. It isn't necessarily some sort of like fringe thing that you only do in ashrams now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that one of these really sort of um, harmful or at least not helpful narratives about meditation is that um, it's made to make you feel good. Like this is a, this is a thing that we practice and we do because it's going to make us feel really good. Um, and I think that's something that a lot of people experience is that the moment that they sit down on the meditation cushion, uh, and I wonder if this has been your experience in meditation, um, everything that they had been kind of like avoiding or, you know, just not processed material, um, comes right to the surface. It all comes front and center uh, because meditation practice is clarifying. It just, it makes space for whatever is already there to arise and be expressed. Um, and for a lot of people that looks like anxiety and it looks like, um, tightness and it looks like sadness and it looks like self doubt. And it looks like all of these kind of garden variety demons, um, that I talk about in the book, which, uh, is another reason why I wanted to write this book because I, I, I teach meditation in a very secular way um, at Mindful Studios here in New York City, uh, some corporate clients, as I mentioned. And um, oftentimes people will come up to me afterwards with questions like that. Like, oh, that wasn't the like rainbow and unicorn scenario that I had anticipated it would be. Like what's mm-hmm. like what's going on here? Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think um, you know, going going back to what you had mentioned, um, sort of really looking at meditation practice as an opportunity to um, become aware of and, and develop a familiar relationship with, and then integrate um, whatever is already kind of there. Um, it's so helpful. It's just so helpful. Yeah. Oh, 100%. Yeah. I, I know that, like, y- you know, if, if someone is getting is new to meditation and they're experiencing some overwhelming emotions or, or anxieties or, or sadness or anything like that that's arising, it's like, well, sure, like, you've never looked inward before. So there's a lifetime's worth of things, stuff that you're holding inside of you that is being addressed for the first time. And, and you're letting the first a bit of steam out of the teapot. Right. But the way I look at it is like, um, you know, as soon as you start to touch and address and allow each of those things to arise and be felt and processed and so forth, you start literally emptying yourself out. You know, you're, you're packed to the gills. That's why you even probably went to seek meditation in the first place without even fully consciously realizing it. And as one processes all of those things over the course of days or weeks or years or decades or whatever it is, then eventually through the timeline of your own experience, once you catch up to now, mm then you are working on a one in one out basis. So once you have a continual practice and you, you have, 
you know, spent the time on the cushion to integrate and process everything you're carrying, then you're open and you're, you're empty of those feelings that you're holding on to. Mm-hmm. Those have been let go. Then you have all this internal empty space. That's a breathing room. You know, if you've got that breathing room, then you can really, ah, you can really breathe. You can really feel present. You can really feel now. And then as new things are, come in, which they always do, it's a byproduct of living, new negative experiences flow into you, then it's like, okay, there's one and I'll let that out and just kind of allow that to, to move through in the next practice. So what I'm saying is, you know, I find that when someone starts, it, it can be overwhelming for sure. But once you put in the work to catch up to now, then that's where maybe more of the rainbows <laughs> come from. But, but also, you know, I, I think that in the early stages, I, I felt a lot of bliss, because it was like i finally whenever i first was meditating it was like it was like a medicine for um it was like a sanctuary that's kind of how i describe it it's like and and i feel you talk about similar things in your book a little bit about just you know in your childhood and and dealing with your your environment and kind of waking up to how your circumstances were different than the other people that you knew and how that began to invite some demons you know Mm -hmm. um to me, similarly, you know, my ecosystem uh, had some challenges and meditation for me became this like barrier to where I thought, okay, it's kind of like shout out to Viktor Frankl where it's like um, this, my mind and inside of my body, this is my sanctuary. Hmm. And meditation provided like a sweet, sweet relief in that, in that way. And then, then that's when, then the processing started, you know, but so I don't think it's like um, you, you don't get a, a, a black or white. It's, it's this whole mixture of, of relief and then new challenges and then you know, processing things. And it's this whole beautiful kind of living organic unfolding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm so happy. I'm so happy that you had the experience of, of your body being a sanctuary. Um, I know not everybody has that particular experience um, of, of their body being like a really safe space to be, um, particularly if there's like, you know, some compacted trauma there or, um, yeah, I think, you know, what a, what a lovely testament to um, what, a, what a regular practice can be. Um, and I, I think, you know, you, you mentioned that, you um, with, with a regular practice, it gives us the opportunity to kind of catch up to now. Um, and then we're sort of like processing one-to-one um, mm-hmm. as, as really challenging things come in. We can sort of work with them and, and kind of let them out the back door. Um, but I think, you know, that operative word that you used being the, the regular meditation practice um, is such a helpful reminder. Like, yeah, this is a, it's a daily thing or mm-hmm. as close to daily as we can, you know, make time for. Yeah. Yeah. I, I tend to, I like to m- meditate five times a week and that way there's no chance of me like ever looking at it like a, a chore or sort of like, it's like too common of a thing where I'm sort of like, ah, and it, it's easy to kind of break as a habit that way. I actually enjoy it so much that if there's a little gap in, in the week, then it makes it to where I'm like dying to get back to it on Monday again. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of like edging or something. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. I don't know if you feel this way, but I always feel like I, I notice the impact of my practice when I've, it's gone a few days. <laughs> it's like, oh, I haven't practiced for a few days. It's like, Ooh, yeah, that's important. That makes a difference. Yeah. yeah well, I keep wearing this, this chain mail of, of, uh, of edginess arises. Um, so before we wrap up here, um, given that your book is about feeling worthy in worthiness, um, what are a few ways that you can get back to feeling worthy wherever you find yourself feeling incomplete or not enough in your daily life? Mm. Yeah, that's a beautiful question. Um, you know, I, I think one thing that can be really helpful is, is just to take on worth and dignity um, and the, the sort of audacious claim that uh, you, me, everyone that we know, uh, but starting with you first, uh, that you are already worthy, that you are already complete, you are whole, you are sufficient. Um, and it's that sense of worthiness that um, can't be added to. No, none of our accomplishments can add to that sort of baseline worth and dignity that we all possess just by virtue of being human. Um, and nothing can take it away. That uh, it, it just is. It's it's a birthright of being human. Um, and I think that that taking that on as a, a working hypothesis um, is really a great first step. Um, because it, it sort of is leading in with the question of, you know, rather than sort of like adopting this as being um, the capital T truth, like check it out from the lowercase t truth of your experience. Like, does this, does this match up? Um, and where do you find the conflict? Where do you find that, um, you know, the, the, the sense that, yes, you are a, a worthy, complete, sufficient human being full of dignity, like doesn't quite check out for you. What are, what are the gaps there? Um, and I think just sort of becoming a, a student of that for ourselves, um, and expanding it out, expanding it out, maybe adopting the hypothesis that, um, okay, if I'm in the world and I'm of the world, um, maybe worth isn't just secluded to me. Maybe worth is also, inherent in everything. Maybe everything has worth. Maybe all of these like really kind of challenging moments or boring moments or annoying moments or these moments that feel like they're just kind of the thing that I have to get through before I get to the good thing. Like maybe even those moments have worth. Maybe there's value there and there's inherent dignity in those moments. Maybe the things that we consider to be just kind of like, you know, um, the background noise of our lives. Maybe those things also have worth. It's a possibility. It's, it's worth checking it out. Um, and I, I think sort of starting with ourselves, starting with the hypothesis that just by virtue of being human, we have inherent dignity um, and starting to look for it, starting to look for it everywhere, especially in the things and the moments and the places and the people that we find to be like the most kind of like, eh, like really going and looking for the inherent dignity and value and worth that exists there, um, I think is a really great place to start. And I think, you know, going back full circle to the beginning of our conversation, um, that to me is how 
this exploration of, of worth, um, self-worth, the worth of everything, um, sort of translates as, as kind of like a in-the-dirt, boots-on-the-ground practice, um, is just to start looking for it. Go looking for it and, and see what happens. Mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah, it's it's one of those tricky things where, like, if if someone is feeling like like an idiot someday, <laughs> you, you can't. It, it'll say that I'm feeling like an idiot. Yeah. Me going, you're smart. Like that doesn't help. Mm-mm. You know, like it doesn't. <laughs> and so similarly, I think with the idea of feeling worthy, like if you are feeling um, depleted just being like you're worthy that doesn't really do anything you know and i love the idea of of seeking for for that in your own life and keeping an eye peeled for it is a better way to actually start to feel that again like as you were talking about that i was thinking like where are places in life that one could see like worth that is objective right because we can tell ourselves these, you know, can make up some pretty nasty stories in, even in the face of glaring truth a lot of times. But if you just look at simple things, right? Like, well, whenever I was in the grocery store checking out the person I, I talked to that was checking me out and they said, hi, and I asked them how they were doing and they smiled. Mm. I just created worth. Mm-hmm. Like I just made that person that the person just felt better. Like, even though it's this little blip on the radar of their life, like, there was a moment where we had this connection and my existence created a resonance, which made them feel alive and connected and warm for that moment. Like there's one right there, yeah. you know? Yeah. I love that as a tangible example. Yeah, exactly. Like your, your, your mutual worth was just reflected in that moment. It's like, Oh, hi, I see you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you have worth. This moment has worth. It's ripe with it. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the on the podcast. It's been a great time talking to you. And thank you for sharing all of your awesome ideas and beautiful wisdom. Mm, thank you so much for having me, Corey. This was really fun. It's absolutely great to just chat with you today. <laughs>